I see you all got the memo and are still eligible for the annual bonus. Uh, here at Liars League we like to work hard and to play hard. And our writers have slaved over the deadline to present some fantastic stories about work and play. And our esteemed actors know what high performance really <coughs> looks like. But it's 7.35, so you can turn your phones off, switch off that email, put your out of office on, kick back and have some fun this evening with Liars Lead, where writers write, actors read, the audience listens, and everybody wins. We have five fantastic stories for you tonight. We'll have an interval. We'll have the very famous Liars League literary quiz. Five magnificent stories to uh, take home for those who win. And uh, on your tables, you might find some minions, if there are any left. And some bubbles, maybe, for the intervals, when you really can have some extra fun on Liars League. Anyway, without further ado, our first story will be Ted by Jason Jackson and read by Jim Cogan. Jason writes short fiction and poetry. You can find links to some of his recent published writing at jjfiction.wordpress.com. Jim is a scriptwriter, documentary maker, and occasional voiceover artist based in Oxford. After far too much acting at university, he studied creative writing at Birkbeck University and jointly won the Liars League Most Valuable Player Writers Award 2015. Jim. Ted by Jason Jackson. Ted used to dress up like a nun. Usually it was for children in need, but sometimes it was fundraisers. That time there was the tsunami. He'd carry a bucket, wear a pair of false breasts outside his habit, if that's what you call the thing in nun wears. And he'd charge you 50 pence a squeeze. They made a noise like a duck if you squeezed hard enough. Some people used to laugh. He had a photograph on his desk of his wife, his kid. It was a kind of picture you could imagine he'd cut from a magazine and put in a frame just to pretend there was a family. You hear about these people rocking in the dark and rooms alone at night and pretending to everyone at work that they're happily married. But Gary in accounts said he bumped into the three of them at some garden centre. Said the wife was surprisingly tall, the kid well behaved. Ted didn't talk about them much, but if you asked him, he'd give you the normal response. Yeah, fine. Off to the coast to feed the caribou for the weekend. Well, whatever. At the time, I was engaged. Had my eye on promotion. I used to take south to Indian restaurants, loud bars that were open past midnight. Clubs with names like Cue Ball, Bass Rider. We lived in an apartment with a balcony. And I'd come home from work, sip large gins, and we'd talk about the people we work with, with thinly disguised irony. Each day, I'd look at Ted, and I'd feel my chest tighten. I knew that he watched Coronation Street. I knew that he preferred Formula One to football. I knew that he wore the same five shirts to work each week, 
red on Monday, green on Tuesday, whatever the sequence was. He wore Disney ties and matching Disney socks. I mean, <laughs> Jesus went. I didn't do anything bad, not really. Jay was behind most of it. He thought of the porn mags. We used to leave him in Ted's drawer, in his in-tray, under his desk. We'd watch him. He never said a word to anyone about it. He'd see the mag, sigh, and he'd pick it up, roll it up, carry it across the office to the paper recycling bin. So Jay pushed it further. He took the photograph from Ted's desk, scanned it, and he made a mock-up newspaper story with the photograph as the centerpiece, alongside a reproduction of Ted's security pass, all about how this beautiful family had disappeared, how police had searched for them everywhere, how they suspected foul play, and how the father, the husband, Disney-loving non-impersonator Ted, was their chief suspect. Made me laugh. Jake stuck the article up in the canteen, and by the time Ted got there on second lunch, half the building had seen it. Apparently, he took it from the wall, read the whole thing while he ate his pie and chips, and then he rolled it up and put it in the recycling bin. We stopped after that. Jay was eyeing the same promotion as I was, and rumours had started that either one of us was behind the newspaper thing, so we decided to leave it alone. I told Sal, and she said, good, it was about time I grew up a little. The night I caught them, I was drunk. I'd been out with a few people from football, it was the end of the season. The worst thing was that they were in the bed I slept in. The bed we slept in. They weren't at a Jay's, they weren't at a hotel. I knew exactly what that meant. It meant they wanted to get caught. I came back early. I wanted to see her. I'd even taken some ribbing from the boys about how I was under their thumb. And as soon as I walked in, I could hear them. I walked into the bedroom, and I walked straight back out again. I walked out of the door, got into my car, and I drove away. It was a Wednesday night, and I took my next two days off. I went to the coast, booked into a cheap hotel. I lay in bed, watched Sky Sports, drank gin straight from the bottle and smoked two packs of cigarettes a day. The only thing I ate was pepperoni pizza, which I got delivered to the hotel reception at 5pm each day. On Monday, I drove straight back to work in the clothes I'd left in on the Wednesday. Jay didn't even look at me when I walked in. He'd taken the photograph I had of Sal from my desk and put it on his. I knew what he wanted from me, I didn't say a word. Ted was there, along with everyone else, and things passed like every other Monday. People worked, people made coffee, people worked some more. There was some problem with a big contract that Jay and some of the others had been working on, so there was quite a bit of coming and going around 11. Soon it was just me and Ted. I'd like to say that he said something to me, some kind of consoling words. I knew what Jay was like and I knew that everybody must have known. But Ted didn't say anything. He didn't stand up, walk over and squeeze my shoulder. He didn't lean across to me and say, we all think Jay's out of order. 
and he didn't even offer to make me a coffee when he got up to make his. He sat there in his red Monday shirt and he worked. I worked too and at the end of the day no one home. Sal's stuff was gone. There was no note. The next day I went to work and came home. Did the same the next day and the next. I didn't get a promotion and nor did Jay but he got another job. Better pay, another firm. So he was gone within the month. Last week it was children in need. Take him to work, dressed as a nun, breasts high and handsome, carrying his bucket, smiling. But the boss called him into the office, and when he came out again, the breasts were dangling in his hand. He went straight to the toilets, and when he came out, he'd taken off the nun costume. He still took the bucket around the canteen at lunchtime, and a few of the offices in the afternoon. But you could tell his heart wasn't in it. I asked him, Finally, near the end of the day, when there were only the two others left in the office, said it was inappropriate. I shook my head. Never mind, he said. And he smiled, shrugged, and turned back to his computer. I looked at the known costume and the deflated breasts lying under the desk. And I looked at his broad back, his hunched shoulders. I looked at the photograph on his desk, his wife. I picked up my briefcase and I walked to the door. For the first time since I worked there, I said, Night, Ted. He turned to me. Yeah, night, he said. And he made it seem as if it were the easiest thing in the world. story of the evening is The Phobia Room by Stuart Snelson and it will be read by Greg Page. Stuart lives in London. His <coughs> writing has appeared in 3AM, Ambit, Bear Fiction, Hopes, Lighthouse, Pop Shop, Structo, Synesthesia among others and was shortlisted for the 2016 Commonwealth Short Story Prize. He can be found online at stuartsnelson.wordpress.com and on Twitter, Stuart Snelson. Age six, Greg Page was cast as Joseph in his infant school nativity. Somebody put a tea towel on his head and he became someone else. He hasn't been himself since. He can be contacted through roseburymanagement.com and has no idea what he's done with his keys. Greg. The Phobia Room by Stuart Snelson. The first time Burton's client arrived anticipating an avalanche of snakes. This is a common misapprehension. As an exposure therapist, he helps people overcome phobias, but contrary to their fears, there is no immediate confrontation. They are edged gently towards their tormentor. At parties, he's often asked, what are you afraid of? 
he insists they change the tense of the question. What were you afraid of? Naturally, he explains, he's mastered his own fears before helping others overcome theirs. His client is late. He abhors tardiness. The only client he'd accepted this from was a man with a terror of time itself. In his drawer, a muffled clock had tick-tocked innocuously as they worked towards an anxiety-free future. This particular client's problem, ophidiophobia, in layman's terms, a fear of snakes, is not an uncommon one. His is not even the worst case Burton has encountered. A previous client had developed a dread of virtually any elongated form. His panic had become unmanageable. From his drawer, Burton retrieves a photograph of said client, grinning, a snake draped around his neck. He returns clients to their loved ones as lobotomized versions of themselves. Key pieces missing, the previously arachnophobic, happy to dance a parentella <coughs> beneath a torrent of spiders. On the walls of his office, framed certificates attest to his excellence. Each day, the pavement outside his office plays host to shaking shadows cast by medical rejects. Possibilities exhausted, they appear apprehensive upon his doorstep. Once clients begin therapy, intimate relationships develop. Often, they are confiding for the first time. He reassures them that they are not alone. But it's a position of trust prone to abuse. He knows of at least one therapist who's been struck off for engaging in mutual exposures with a patient. <laughs> Even so, through his it's through his work that he met his current wife. She arrived with a crippling fear of escalators. It seemed an old-fashioned affliction. Originally, department stores, upon unveiling their escalators, had staff dispense gins to the intrepid who had braved these seemingly sentient stairways. She spoke with terror of being chewed into the workings, rows of metal teeth advancing upon soft flesh. Tracing back, they discovered a grazed knee from childhood that had festered psychologically. With the aid of a treadmill, he built her confidence. In a shopping centre, with him acting as her crutch, she stepped upon her nemesis, and afterwards she rode them aimlessly, victorious, practically dancing as she revelled in less fretful steps. He watched her with luxurious pride. <coughs> he sees all types. Nervous flyers promoted to positions where air travel becomes unavoidable. Acidophobics in new relationships with dog lovers. Others, and these are the easiest to help, have become despondent at their nervous <coughs> servitude. No longer will they yield to irrationalities. He helps people reclaim their lives. Like an exorcist banishing demons, he casts their phobias out. Italicised upon his business card, together we will conquer your fears.
checks the time. His client is 15 minutes late. This is unacceptable. The man's therapy has only just begun. Sessions are still conversational. Levels of exposure will steadily increase. Advance to still photographs, videos, a cuddly toy, a tactile afternoon with a snakeskin shoe, <laughs> headphones which hiss persistently, a gradual depletion of unfamiliarity before confronting the object of his distress. For an island with few indigenous snakes, it's astonishing how many people share this affliction. It seems irrational, but then that is often a phobia's defining feature. Of course, it isn't just direct contact that proves petrifying. Their sudden appearance in a film, a slithering cameo, is enough to rattle sufferers, leaving them red-faced, barnacled with scattered popcorn. Any semblance can unsettle them. Such uncomfortable glitches bring many men to his practice. They do not respond well to kinks in their bravado. Embarrassed to be seeking help, they arrive in steely denial. Rationalising their situation, they talk of predator alertness, long shadows cast by Neanderthal ancestors, atavistic flashbacks, cocksure, some have stiff-lipped their way into improbable positions, including, incredibly, a practicing dentist with a fear of needles. In the comfort of his office, warriors reluctantly expose Achilles' heels. No matter how preposterous their anxieties, he remains straight-faced. A wry smile sends the wrong signals. He offers solidarity. His wife understands better than most this need for confidentiality. Friends ask for his most unusual cases, but he refuses to be drawn. For the purposes of dinner party babble, he will not discredit his clientele. Tight-lipped, he ignores their pleas. Let others stoop to belittling debilitations for cheap laughs. Diligent to a fault, he once shaved off his beard to pacify a pogonophobe. She was surprised to discover her condition had a name. Plundering Greek and Latin, any aversion could be validated. Unsurprisingly, in her case, he discovered that it was not so much beards as their wearers that unnerved her. <laughs> Specifically, an uncle who loved to touch. To his wife's dismay, he grew his own beard back, and having itched its way through, he resumed twiddling individual whiskers as he listened to his clients. This is the third session that his snake-fearing client has missed. Follow-up phone calls have proved fruitless. He is unaccustomed to having his time wasted in this manner. As he looks about his office, he recalls past triumphs. There was a man with a morbid dread of nudity. Other naked forms proved unproblematic, but as to his own body, he couldn't bear it. He wore a blindfold in the shower. By influence, Burton persuaded him to remove an item of clothing at each session. 
a process resumed from conclusion the following week. He'd never coaxed a man from his boats before. Over two months, he endured the world's slowest striptease, which culminated with his client dancing naked around his office, a victory streak. <coughs> Patients often experience mild euphoria. Emancipated, they regain control of their lives, leave his office free of demons, or at least the most prominent of their number. No one has tried to walk out for some time. It is a commitment not so easily broken. He takes initial interviews as verbal contracts. They will conquer their fears. Accepting that his client is not going to make an appearance, he busies himself. He will administer to the needs of his phobia. Access through a side door. The phobia room is the antithesis of his office's safe haven. No natural light permeates this space. Musty, it channels half-remembered museums. At the light's flicker, the sound of movement, furtive rustles as things awake. It's a haphazard arrangement. Besides a snake tank, a cage of nervous mice deal with their own issues. He sprinkles tidbits, critters nibbling, oblivious to their function. Nestled softly nearby, anthropomorphized counterparts, the terrifying reduced to cuddly versions of themselves. The stuffy room plays host to a menagerie of taxidermied animals in specimen jars, contorted, pickled horrors displayed in trays an array of insects and arachnids, moths and butterflies crucified. In drawers, bagged examples of niche, niche catalysts, bees and bones, feathers and fur, tablets and teeth. Redundant technologies rust. On reel-to-reels, a sound effects library, which instills shivers in listeners. A slide projector sits silently. Beside it, a carousel of nightmares gathers dust. Concertina folders, bulbous accordions provide an archive of palpitation-inducing photographs. For his clients, twisted Proustian rushes, anti-Madelines, totems invoking past traumas. Only he has access to the phobia room. He finds it gives him great strength to stand, invincible, amidst stimuli that reduce others to quivering wrecks. His wife has accused him of making a show of his bravery. Well, who, though, he asked her, wishes to consult a jittery therapist? He imagines a client trapped inside overnight, discovering them the next day, hyperventilating, Eyes screwed tightly shut, they would leave, no doubt, with additional anxieties. Such extensive paraphernalia links him with high-class prostitution, the well-stocked brothel furnishing every recherche whim. He even owns uniforms, authority figure cast-offs in which he dresses to address clients' problems. Each case 
adds something new to his collection, his history of vanquished fears. His wife, he knows, imagines he prefers the company of the anxious, responds well to distress signals. She has little of that to offer him. She senses his diminished interest since overcoming her fear, perhaps suspects infidelities with the vulnerable, a twitcher clutched tightly in a bat cave, a damsel serenaded across a vertiginous rope bridge. Would she need to weaken again, she'd asked him, in order to strengthen their marriage? She's accused him of loving his phobia room more than her, has rashly suggested that he have her stuffed, mounted, and placed center stage. At least that way, she said, they would be guaranteed time together. Impressive as it is, he dreams of expanding his room still further. He imagines an infinite space, a room of amorphous dimensions that could walk to combat every possible phobia, that could expand upon entrance to challenge the agrophobic, open out beneath them into a yawning chasm for the acrophobic, condensed into a restrictive cell for the claustrophobic, allow space for planes to take off for the airphobic. Carried away on mind-bending eddies, he realizes that such a room would, of necessity, be a full-scale replica of the world itself. Weeks ago, he had unlocked the door and entered. Hello, said a voice from the shadows. Startled, he jumped, backed into an antique phrenology head, gasping as it shattered. What the? His wife emerged from the gloom. I thought I made it quite clear. But she was laughing at him. Had never seen him scared before. He stooped to the floor, collecting fragments of the head. He tried to jigsaw it back together. He placed the shards upon his desk and moved towards her. Livid, he ushered her out. She had invaded his inner sanctum, plundered his wonder karma, ransacked stacked kryptonites. What had she expected to find? She packed and left that evening. He takes great pride in his work makes the world more hospitable for those with a suspended sense of threat. His website is a roll call of glowing testimonials. He keeps a sheaf of letters, heartfelt thanks from people unanchored from previous encumbrances. More than once he's been told, you've given me my life back. His dedication witnesses expeditions outside office hours. Holding his patients' hands, he escorts them into their nightmares. A butterfly house run with a woman who had shuddered at their flutter. A circus visit with a man brought down by clowns. But it is no altruistic gesture. He doesn't believe in failing better. He refuses to be defeated. No one has ever walked away from his office with their fears intact. Yet, out there, somewhere, is his truant client, a man running from his problems. 
Only being genuinely indisposed would justify him on attendance. Perhaps his client had decided to run before he can walk, arranged a trip to the Amazon in search of anacondas. He imagined the man's final minutes spent with a snake's awful jaws before being ingested with grim efficiency into the lethal sleeping bag of its body. He stands in his phobia room. His client's 50 minutes are up, and once more, he has declined to arrive. This weak-willed individual will scupper Burton's success rate. Connecting unrelated strands, his wife's departure, his absentee client, he concocts adultery. He imagines secret rendezvous, his wife drinking snake bites as she succumbs to this charlatan's charms. Still, he finds it hard to believe she would leave him with someone, for someone with such a prosaic phobia. Aside from the old rustle, he stands there in silence. Alone now, his wife will no longer surprise him. What's more, he has failed his client. Idly, he fondles the triggers which instill chills in his visitors. A plastic bat, a rubber puppy, a fistful of feathers. But they refuse to move him. Flawless, granite-jawed, he will not register his dread. What are you afraid of, people ask him. They will never know. fiction, short stories and novels in many genres, including humour and crime. His stories have been published in magazines, anthologies and online. His first novel, The Boss Killers, is a dark humour crime story and was published in 2015. Clive recently appeared in a new play, Howard's End, and appears in two upcoming features, Mob Handed and Alice on Mars. He co-wrote Goodbye, the afterlife of Cook and Moore, which ran at the Gilded Balloon and Leicester Square Theatres and the Museum of Comedy. He has written a new Frankie Howard tribute show, Titters Up the Tiger, which starts touring in September. I look forward to that. Thank you, Clark. <laughs> Break a leg by Keith Gillison. Malcolm stood on the stage and looked out at the empty theatre. The rows of folded seats, the faded burgundy curtains, the peeling wallpaper. The glory days were gone, but it was his little slice of heaven. If he closed his eyes, he could hear the applause, the laughter and the encores. He turned at the sound of approaching footsteps. 
Our darlings, they are the finest actors in England. Sid, Norman, and Derek. <laughs> Look behind them to see who these amazing actors were. Malcolm was getting carried away again. Another nut, I've given this a lot of thought, and this year's big dramatic production will be Romeo and Juliet. It was a photo finish between the three men to contain their unbridled excitement in this news. <laughs> Can I be Romeo? Sid asked. I got you down to play Mercutio, sweetheart. There's a very important role, Mercutio. You get to show off your wonderful skills. Malcolm replied, attempting to let Sid down gently. But I want to be Romeo. Well, the trouble is, um, Sidney, my dear, it's, well, it's, well, it's not what you find a point of it. Uh, Romeo is a, an attractive young man, and uh, you are, um, well, um, you got a face like a bloody welder's bench, Sid. <laughs> Norman explained. It's not my fault, uh, Bloody big light fell off the ceiling and killed me. See how good you look with half a ton of steel lands on your face, Sid protested. Derek looked confused. Am I dead? he asked. Norman sighed. We've been through this a hundred times, Derek. You're dead, we're all dead. You'll still be dead the next time you ask if you're dead. And by the way, can I be Romeo? <laughs> Did I die? Derek asked. You fell down the stairs, you fool. Look, am I Romeo or what? Uh, no, <coughs> not this year, love. No, no, no. I, I thought we should let our newest member take the lead role this time. Congratulations, Derek. You are our Romeo. Norman scowled. Are you sure I'm ready? Derek asked, beaming. Darling, you were born ready. Now, your performance the other week in South Pacific, well, it brought tears to my eyes, it did. I mean, I think it's now it's time we pushed you to the next level. Pushed? Derek shouted with greater lucidity than normal. I was pushed down the stairs. Well, that's very unfortunate, my dear. But you know what they say? One door closes and another one opens. Derek glared at Malcolm. He much preferred being alive. <laughs> All right, lads. Uh, Romeo and Juliet. So uh, let's start at Act One, a uh, C one. Uh, Norman, uh, you can be Abraham. Uh, Sid, you are Samson, and Derek, uh, you will be Gregory. Uh, we'll work the rest out later. Can I be Samson? Norman asked, irritated that the others kept getting the roles that he wanted. Well, is a bit of a problem there? Malcolm replied. You haven't got any hands, darling. So, how are you going to bite your thumb without any hands? Norman sucked. I'd still have hands if it wasn't for that stupid prop guillotine malfunctioning and chopping me bleeding hands off. I'd still have a head as well. Norman wanted to put his stumps on his hips to give his harumph the proper treatment it deserved. But as usual, they were otherwise engaged in the important act of carrying his severed head. <laughs> Sid and Derek began acting out scene one, while Malcolm and Norman observed. They may be more wooden than a woodshed in a timber yard, 
but by God, I will make actors out of them. Malcolm thought to himself, it had been his life's dream to be a top theatre director. But fate had decided that that would not be the case. Where life had cheated him, though, the afterlife was a world of opportunity. If he could just recruit a few more members to his theatre company, they'd really be on their way. Pickings were slim. He just couldn't understand why the dead weren't queuing up to spend eternity reciting Shakespearean monologues. But possibly it was because, as Malcolm's audience, they'd already spent what felt like eternity <laughs> watching Shakespearean monologues. <laughs> Cultural entertainment options were somewhat limited for the deceased spectator. Oh, that's lovely, that is. It's lovely. Malcolm gushed over Derek and Sid's performance. No, I'm feeling it. I, I, I really am. Now, if, if I could just offer one, one teeny little bit of advice, though. Now, don't hold back, my dear. No, no, let it all out. I'm sure we can squeeze just one more teensy little bit of passion out of you. We're doing our best, Malcolm. We didn't all go to Rada, you know. Sid replied in exasperation. No, no, Sidney, no, Sidney, I'm trying to help, my dear. Uh, don't get upset, little old me. If I say anything, it's only because I care. <laughs> now, I died on stage of a heart attack, playing a man who was dying of a heart attack. <laughs> now, that is how much I care, darling. <laughs> Sid nodded his acknowledgement, mentally calculating the amount of times Malcolm had regaled them with the tale of his demise. It was approaching 10,000. <laughs> There was a noise. Not the noise of ghosts, but a real noise. They were so much louder. The Boston players, deceased, stopped what they were doing. Somebody was attempting to lock the, unlock the front door and enter the theatre. Bloody living, spoiling our fun again, Malcolm thought. Right now, lads, places everyone. Uh, Norman, if you could do that floating head thing again. Uh, Derek, uh, you give them your most demonic look. And uh, Sid, well, no, actually, Sid, you're fine as you are. You look hideous. <laughs> now, remember, screams are good, but it's coronary failure that we're after. And if there is more than one of them, concentrate on any women present. We must have a Juliet. <laughs> Malcolm looked at the three men attempting to pull their scariest faces. Now, bless their little cotton socks. They mean well, but they couldn't frighten a nervous child. He'd have to lend a hand again. A faulty guillotine here, a loose light fitting there, a good hard shove in the back. He knew what to do. Fantastic, thank you, Brian. And three stories works in such a long way away now. Um, we now have an interval. So if you would like to join us back in about well, 15, 20 minutes, about half past eight, please do get yourself a drink and some of the sweets if there are some left on the table. There are some more just at the front for those who need some more. Uh, do look at the books we've got to buy. We've got the quiz after the interval, and we will see you again 
shortly. Thank you very much. We have two more wonderful stories for your delight and dedication. The first of which is A Man We Don't Even Know by Jacqueline Downs, which will be read by Cliff Chapman. Jacqueline's work has appeared in several anthologies, most recently Canongate's My Old Man Tales of Our Fathers, where she is sandwiched between Sean Ryder and Roger McGough's son. Her first screenplay is currently in the hands of two directors, while the producer nags them to read it. Cliff is an actor, writer, director and voiceover artist, and also teaches archery and interactive history workshops. He appears in audio dramas Robin Hood, Knights of the Apocalypse, and the Horus Heresy, The Heart of the Pharaohs. Engage him in political or geeky invective on Twitter, at Cliff Chapman, uh, or by all means offer him audio or screen work via his website, cliffchapman.com. A Man We Don't Even Know by Jacqueline Downs Jen, I just killed a man. Harry presses the phone hard to his ear. Jan's voice is just audible over the noise of his own terror as it shouts inside him and the sounds of traffic outside the shop. What? What, what do you mean you killed a man? Jan is saying. Love, what do you mean? She doesn't sound scared or angry or confused. This makes him even more grateful for her, for their 20 years that she can hear those words and know that it's nothing to be scared or angry or confused about. She will trust whatever he says. He finds the words to tell her about the man who came into the cafe less than what, an hour ago? Came into the cafe, asked to sit on one of Jan's tatty old kitchen chairs by the window, refused tea, the use of a phone, help. In reply, Jan says the right thing. You didn't kill him. His heart killed him, and nothing would have changed that. Not five minutes, not five hours. He is glad she says this, although he doesn't believe her. But he just wants to feel better that he didn't pick up the phone earlier, much earlier, and dial 999, even though the man told him not to. The man told him he was all right until he decided that, after all, he wasn't. I hate this bit, says Ben. They always give it to me if I'm on. Apparently I have a kind face, but this has got to be the worst bit. Kate looks at him. Worse than being jumped on? Worse than getting glass? Worse than the time that boy was set alight and you were the first of us to see him? She asks, clutching at his arm as her feet take a slide on the ice. He steadies her, stops for a moment, steadies himself. He is thinking. Yeah. Yeah, I think it is worse than that. Worse. He says nothing more, but Kate knows he is thinking it. He is thinking about having to knock on a door. A door that looks the same as every other door on this estate. On a house that looks the same as every other house. 
He doesn't know who will open the door. But he does know that when the door opens, he will have to speak, say some words that will change the lives of the people who live there forever. With the Burns boy, well, that was bad, telling his parents, going with him to the hospital. But at least the boy was alive, and he stayed alive for what his life was now worth. But this, this is the end of the story for this man they don't even know. This would be Ben saying, your husband's not coming home. Your daddy's not coming home. Going to the hospital again. This time to see this man lying still and growing colder. He won't ever be warm again. Ben will. Later he will be indoors by the electric bar fire and he will be warm again. After Harry puts the phone down on his conversation with Jan, he sits for a moment on the chair behind the counter with a daily mirror folded on his lap. He thinks if he reads the cartoon strips, Andy Cap or one of the others, it will make him better, make him able to stand up, lock up the cafe, find his way home. He looks around. The place needs painting. A good going over, he thinks. He'll do that. He'll get onto it next week. The phone rings, and he knows before picking it up that it's Jack. You're still there, there, love. Why don't you come back? He considers this. Yeah, yeah, okay. I'll take a slow walk, I think. You do that, love. But be careful on that ice. Watch how you walk. It's the freezing cold air that did it, he thinks. Did it for the man he doesn't even know. Squeezed his arm, his heart, like an icy concertina. Maybe on Sunday. Maybe he'll start painting things over there. There's a knocker and a doorbell at number 39. Ben thinks the knocker is less intrusive. Kate thinks it's more foreboding, except she doesn't use that word. She says ominous, or only she pronounces it ominous. And Ben can't help but correct her. We're just about to break some bad news, Ben, she says. Not the time. She smiles as she says this because she knows he's scared. Want me to tell him? She asks. No, it's okay. I'll do it. Okay, I'm gonna knock. He does so. As softly as he can while still being heard. Twice, so they don't think it's only the wind. But he knows that someone inside will have been waiting for it. Through the glass, he and Kate see a shadow race towards the door. Ben knows this move. It's the speed of someone who's been waiting for someone else, expecting them. He doesn't need to rearrange his features. They already speak of solemnity. He glances at Kate. She has her sympathetic face on. He's seen it before. But he knows his is kinder. The door is opened by a girl about ten years old. She has long dark hair, is wearing a skirt and jumper, and has on those woolly tights that kids wear in the winter. She doesn't have slippers on, so Ben can see the bits where her toes go. 
getting a little warm. He doesn't seem surprised to see them. Maybe it's usual on the estate. Ben smiles. Is your mummy? He asks. The girl steps back, shouting to let her mother know. Her tone of voice suggests that she has no idea why they are there. As Ben and Kate edge their way into the mud-coloured hallway with its blue and green swirly carpet, they are both aware of one thing. The mother will know. They always do. Harry locks up and pulls on his gloves against the still freezing temperatures of this January evening. As he passes the other shops on the parade, Chippy, newsagent, the off-license, his right hand springs up to his chest. In sympathy, he wonders, for the man he doesn't know, but to whom he will always now be linked. It's less icy in the town square, but as he edges past the shops onto the side path, he slips a bit on the, this ice that's untouched by salt. He takes it slowly, breathing in and then catching his breath as his chest tightens against the cold air. This is how he must have felt, he thinks, the man he doesn't even know. But worse, much worse. He passes the church hall, there's something going on because there's a line of people, each of them holding a chair, and it looks strange to him, like something from a film. Then he sees the vicar, beaming, oblivious, ushering them in, and the line of chairs starts to sway. The girl has stayed out of the kitchen where her mother leans against the chair, crying. For once, Ben doesn't know what to say. He just wonders why there is one chair, a solitary chair, in the kitchen. Kate touches the mother's arm. Can I call someone for you? She asks. Before anyone can speak, the little girl is there, facing her mum's tears. It's Daddy, the mother says. They think they found him dead, in the snow. Kate thinks... This isn't how it happened, and it's not what we said, but... The mother reaches into the back of the cutlery drawer, and when she pulls out her hand, there's a packet of cigarettes in it. Mum, don't! The girl says through her tears. A teenage boy has appeared behind them. Leave her, he says. Let her smoke. The little girl doesn't know what everyone else in the kitchen knows that her mum is really going to need those cigarettes. His street is not well lit, and Harry has to concentrate, especially as he passes the house of his neighbour from two doors along, because he knows what she's like. She thinks you can melt the snow with boiling water, doesn't think about it freezing up its own little ice rink. He doesn't want a broken leg, a broken anything. As he walks up the path to his own home, he sees Jan at the door, waiting. She smiles and holds out her arms. Ben opens the door to a bony woman, the next-door neighbour, apparently, who isn't wearing a coat and whose red nose suggests she has been crying. She's through here, he says, indicating the dining room where the girl has gone. 
He follows the woman into the room where the girl is sitting on a chair, knees up against her chin, a still life. The woman takes a chair opposite and tries to make conversation about the school day, about an upcoming birthday party for her own daughter. The girl amazes Ben by responding politely in the way that she's been brought up to do, although there is a distracted distance between her thoughts and the words that come out of her mouth. In the seconds it has taken her to walk from the kitchen, where she heard the news, to the dining room, where she will wait while her mum and brother are driven to the hospital to confirm what they all already know. She has grown up. Grown up and grown old. Ben hangs in the doorway, at a loss while Kate gets the mum ready. He looks at the girl. She returns his gaze. Hers is a look that says, I know this is hard for you, but you get to go home tonight, where everything will be normal. Things will never be normal for me now you've stepped into my house with this news. At least that's what he imagines she's saying, this daughter of the man he doesn't even know. But he has a degree and an overactive imagination, and both of these things have given him a tendency towards introspection, which he quite likes about himself, and hopes the job doesn't bleed out of him. While Harry is sitting in a warm kitchen with jam, silent except for his breath blowing on a cup of tea, Ben and Kate are guiding the smoking mother and her teenage son to where the patrol car is parked at the edge of the estate. The boy is silent, his eyes shocked open. The mother speaks. I don't think it's him, she says. You said he was in his forties. He's not. He's nearly sixty. I don't think it's him. <coughs> As he helps her into the car, Ben knows he has to say something that will prepare her. He had an idea on him, love, with his name. You know, William, he says softly, stopping short of the full name. I'm sorry. She wants to wonder out loud if his wallet had been stolen, found on someone else, but closes her mouth as soon as she opens it. She knows it isn't worth the words. Oh, yes, of course. Of course he did. That sounds just like him. It's late now. Harry is in bed. He's found asleep. Jan is beside him, breathing softly, awake on his behalf. Kate has another gulp of vodka, neat because she doesn't have any mixes in the house. She thought that this would stop her drinking, but it just means everything is undiluted. Ben sits on one of the hard-backed chairs at the dining table, his arms rigidly by his sides, shoulder blades pressed together, causing a pain in his back that he doesn't want to alleviate. He's got darts with the boys tomorrow, and now he thinks his arm will play him up. He'll lose, and the boys will laugh and cheer, because Ben usually wins.
will be read by Lewis Tucker. Barney lives in the north of England. His latest stories are in the Warwick Review, Anthology 7, Litro, Shooter Literary Magazine, The Manchester Review, and The Honest Alston. He recently won the Fiction Desk's Ghost Story competition and was shortlisted for the Royal Academy and Pin Drop Short Story Award. Lois has done various bits and bobs and may very well end up doing more. <laughs> Stuff includes penning and performing three solo shows as her silent comedy alter ego, Lois, Lois at the Lane, and releasing the miscellaneous EP on Bandcamp earlier this year, which consists of catchy, silly songs which you might just like. She's not always as serious as a headshot makes her out to be. Thank you, Lois. Doesn't meet his gaze. 
either of his gazes, <laughs> turns and flees. <coughs> she tries to forget him, to get his image out of her mind, as back at home at her parents' house, where she still lives, she sits, she sits watching stupid old silent movies, kind of funny, with her dad, all Friday evening. The next thing with the devil is one time when Michaela's alone in the break room. Everyone else who works here, it seems, smokes, so they're all outside in the designated area like a little cluster of chimneys, each polluting itself with heart disease and lung cancer and whatnot, readying, readying themselves for hell. And Michaela's, for the moment, sat alone with her vending machine coffee and the cheese and tomato sandwich her mum made her that, that morning. And she's just fixing her makeup. When in her compact little mirror, she sees the devil creeping up behind, slithering belly in the carpet towards her. She almost screams. She turns, instinctively shows him his own reflection in her hand, and at the sight of it, the sight of the repellent creature that he is, he shrieks, scurries off in fright, retreats through a crack in the wall back into his cave, or into his corner office, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> The tiny mirror in Michaela's palm, like a shield of crystal, fending off the monster. Though sadly, it'll only work once, Michaela's sure. That's how magic goes. Lots of times after that, Michaela feels Gavin the Devil's eyes on her. They touch a cold slime on her skin, even when she can't see him. Though he doesn't come close to her, not for a while. Not till she's let her guard down a bit and she's doing some photocopying in the print room and then she feels a hand, if you can call it a hand, on her bottom. A reptilian kind of paw. She feels its cold, hard flesh, the webs between its digits, the claws at the tips of its fingers resting lightly on the top of her thigh, the long thumb curling around her waist implicitly threatening what deeper damage such claws might do. All alone at last, the devil's voice hisses in her ear. She freezes, panicked. The photocopy was still whirring and flaring before her, spinning out hard copies of meaningless data projections for some upcoming meeting. <coughs> Don't you know you're mine, the devil says. Mine, all mine, all mine his other scaly green arm snaking about her midriff, working its way down her front. Get off me, she says, whispering it in her fear. I'll scream. You won't, though. You won't, you won't, you won't. His one hand squeezes her bum, the tips of its claws digging in just a little, the other rising now towards her breasts. And then he's giggling manically as she starts to struggle, turns around, tries to squirm from his grasp, elbow him away. Anyone might come in at any moment, but no one does. Has he locked the door? Why is there no one to help her? He pins her up against the photocopier, one scaly arm, more like a reptile's foreleg, actually. Either side of her, their vulture's talons gripping the machine, his face up close into hers, his breath noxious. Please, she says, her hands on his chest, holding him back. Oh, gross! She can feel his body sweat slime even through his shirt. As bad as all those unblinking round eyes on her. His serpent's tail twists with delight. You want to leave? Leave? 
I'm not stopping you. He stands there, sneering as she wriggles out from between the revolting lump of his flesh and the photocopier, having to duck under his arm, finally breaking free. Then the print room door is bolted. She can feel him coming up behind her, writhingly as she figures it out, works the catch, then it's open and she's out, safe. Is she safe? Feeling his eyes on her as, burning with shame, she hurries back to her corner of the desk, hoping no one's noticed anything amiss, dreading what poisonous lies would pour from his wide, wide mouth if he were found out. How could her words stand up to his? This isn't the last of it, of course. There are lots more incidents, derogatory comments from his wide, leering, insect-like face. He keeps finding ways to catch her alone. If you want this job, he hisses, and God knows you need it, then you have to keep me happy, don't you? Hand cuffing her breast as he's come up behind her again. His dick she can feel against her hip, pressing through his trousers and through her skirt. Come on, I know you want it. Not meaning the job this time. Let me tempt you. She tries to go. He holds her arm, the grip demonically strong. Our little secret, he says, his agile tongue licking quickly once of her cheek before letting her go for now. Michaela's always been kind of shy, a bit nervous, socially awkward, a teeny bit scared of the world. And on the bus ride home, squeezed between the other commuters' bodies like the souls of the dead being ferried to hell, she suddenly realises that's why the devil is picking on her. Not because he finds her particularly attractive among all the other girls in the office, of course not, but because he thinks himself safe with her. Reckons she won't tell anyone. He calculates that she's quiet, vulnerable, not really got any friends at work. She's too timid and mild, too much of an angel to want to make a fuss, that he can have his bit of fun, his harmless fun, as he'd no doubt think of it harmless fun that's ruining her life without any danger coming to him. What does Michaela matter? She's no one, just a girl, the juniorest of junior staff, while he's on the way up, department manager soon, regional before too long, and she's nothing. And it's this realization more than anything else, this insight into how the devil's mind works that finally pushes her though it takes all her courage into doing something, into making that fuss after all. At the sexual harassment and bullying in the workplace grievance session, the human resources guy representing her spends most of his time poring over the regulations and protocols like a devout man knelt at prayer, and he's not really very helpful. Comes down to your words against his, he tells Michaela, and Who's going to believe you? He might have well as added. But your words against his words doesn't sound so bad to Michaela. It's like a war in which the only weapons are words, like a trial of combat of words. And, okay, maybe this is a bit goofy of her, believing this. Her words happen to be true, so that's got to mean they're the stronger weapons, right? The HR guy shrugs, looks at her funny, and turns to his notes. The devil is sat across the room next to his solicitor, totally smug and self-assured. Michaela avoids looking at him, mostly, 
Though when she does once glance over, she finds all four of his eyes locked on her, like his head's eyes fixed on her face, hatefully, even as his lower eyes ogle her breasts, her legs, his forked tongue slipping in and out between his flesh-tearing teeth. How can we lose? She asked the guy meant to be on her side. I mean, look at how he's looking at me. He's sexually harassing me right now in the tribunal. What's wrong with him? What those hideous eyes? How can this be happening? And she doesn't lose. It's the devil who loses his job. Relief rushes through Michaela as she realises she'll never have to see him again. Well, that's what she thinks. Because the last thing's the next night when she comes out of work to find him lurking in the car park. A trap laid. She's been kept working late, extra paperwork and filing, but she's pretty sure, with hindsight, the devil himself has arranged to be dumped on her, keeping her in the office till darkness has fallen. Crossing the car park to get to the bus stop, hoping they're not too infrequent at this late hour, she spots him skulking in the shadows, waiting for her. Plainly drunk, snarling his self-pity. His eyes glint redly in the night's murk, like the spots on a four of diamonds, the eyes in his skull and the eyes in his chest. His two mouths are open, the one in his face and one in his belly, both sets of yellowish fangs catching what little moonlight there is. His dark mass, gone totally animalistic now office hours are done and he's unemployed, slithers from the shadows towards her, his clawed mitts reach for her. And this is when she's really at last like, okay, fine, enough. And just as she's done, metaphorically earlier in the tribunal by combat of words, she draws her weapon, reaches in her little shoulder bag to pull out a shimmering silver sword as long as she was tall, watching the unprecious gems of the devil's eyes widen with confusion. Like, how'd she fit that in that? And then, with loathing and fear, and as the devil lunges forward, she swings at him righteously with her sword and strikes the fucker down with one blow. He can't hurt her. She feels like she's wearing golden armour. He howls in pain and defeat, just as in the tribunal. He shouted with anger as she calmly gave her evidence. Howls in agony and defeat, crawling on the car park's concrete like the worm he is, pleading for mercy. But Michaela's no saint. Mercy is not what she deals in. She's finding to her delight. She pins him down with a spike of the heel the devil's foul, greenish-black blood bubbling, bubbling stinkingly from the wound, and raises her sword above her head to deal the killing blow, feeling her bright new wings unfold behind her. Fantastic. Thanks, Lois. That is the end. I have just a couple of announcements to make uh, before we finish. We have the next event, Gods and Mortals. It's going to be on Tuesday, the 13th of September, here at Phoenix. Please do come, bring your friends. And we also have a submission deadline for the 4th of September for our Halloween Flesh and Bone event, which is going to be in October. So if there's authors amongst you, please do submit. 
and we look forward to seeing you in September. Is there anything else I can miss? No. Just we have thank covered you. everything. Just thank you to all of you for being here. It's been a fantastic evening. Thanks so much to the authors. We've got at least one author in the audience. Two. We have two. two. Two authors. So a round of applause for the authors.